You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are really glad that you're here with us. So let me tell you, a big moment in my life was... um, the day that I took my wife out on our first date. So now there's a whole part of the story that I can't tell you because it takes too long, but it's basically where my wife had to explain to me that I needed to ask her out. And I don't have time to talk about that, but you also have to understand that I'm a musician. And so, which means when you're a musician, at least I didn't have to ask girls out. Girls asked me out. That's how it works when you're in a band. And um, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's what was, life was like when I was 19 and I met my wife. So um, I, she kind of explains to me that I need to ask her out, which I do. And then I, I show up at her house on Friday night. I walk up to the door. Now, just to give you an idea as to what I was wearing, because this is important to the story. I was wearing a black T-shirt. Uh, with an, which in big orange letters said Star Blazers. Uh, that was a 1970s Japanese anime show that I watched as a kid. And it had been my favorite show since I was about seven years old. And um, now, once again, love it, still love it. Probably not first date gear. But anyway, so wearing that shirt. I'm also wearing a pair of pajama pants that I bought at a thrift store for $1. But I I didn't want to wear pajama pants. I mean, what kind of an animal am I? So I cut them into shorts. And so, but you know what happens when you, (laughs) you know what happens when you cut pants into shorts with that kind of material? They start fraying. So I had all these like fringe, fringy fraying things that were coming down to my shoes. So, and it was, uh, I was also wearing this plaid baseball cap that I used, I wear a baseball cap everywhere, but um, since I was, you know, a kid, but um, but I was wearing this plaid baseball cap uh, backwards because I had a mohawk. Uh, I know, I, it's shocking, but, uh, <laughs> but I used to have this purple mohawk, but I was growing it out. So I was letting, I, I had like my, my black hair was growing out. So part of my hair was purple and then part of my hair was black. And then, so I just was like, look, I'll just put the ball cap on. So I had the ball cap on, but then at the same time, I decided to start growing a beard. And so I looked like a chia pet gone bad. So if you can kind of get that. And so anyway, now I just want you to imagine purple mohawk growing out, ball caps, kind of a beard, um, star blazers shirt, $1 pajama pants cut into shorts with the stuff fraying. Hi, I'm here to pick up your daughter. And, uh, and, and I, I, I don't think so, buddy. And uh, I have two girls. And I'm telling you, if some kid showed up looking like that to my house, my only response would be, hey, man, I am willing to do prison ministry from the inside. Uh, so that's how, that's how I'm handling that. So anyway, uh, but you can imagine I was not met with a lot of enthusiasm from Carrie's stepdad. And uh, when, so I knock on the door. She, she answers the door and invites me in. And then the... Uh, uh, we go over to their living room and then her dad is sitting a, on, in this lazy boy recliner 
and she says, hey, Dad, this is, this is uh, Bob uh, who's taking me out tonight. And I'm like, hi, sir, it's nice to meet you. And uh, he just kind of turns in his lazy boy recliner, looks at me and goes, and just blows a bunch of smoke in my direction and then just turns and keeps watching TV. And uh, so not a fan of me. Um, now, just an update, 30 years later, still not a fan of me. So... <laughs> Anyway, I really haven't made that much improvement. So, but, um, you know, next about nine days or so, my wife and I will celebrate 27 years being married. So, yeah. Checkmate, buddy. I win. So, anyway. Now, I tell you this because I, I do have, I have a firm belief that there are moments in your life that define you. There are moments in your life where you come face to face with a challenge, face to face with an opportunity, face to face with the truth. And it's what we do with those moments that define us. And if we were being honest and we really thought about the, our lives up to this point, um, they were moments, not months. They were moments, not years. They were moments, not decades that defined us. It's the moment that we decided that we were going to walk down the aisle with him or her that set off a chain of events that led us to where we are now, good or bad. It's the decision to stick it out when things got difficult in school or career or relationship that made all the, dis uh, all the difference. It, sometimes it was the decision, the moment when we said, you know what, we're going to step out and do something, try something that we hadn't done. And that was the thing. We took a risk and that was the thing that made all the difference. That was the defining moment. The moment that changed everything. Now, here's the other thing that's important for us to understand. Is that sometimes we think of these moments, we think of defining moments as the triumphant moments in our lives, right? They're like, it's the moment that we win. It's the moment that everything works out. It's the moment that we were right and all that. And, and those can be defining moments. But you know, the opposite is also true. That there are painful moments, difficult scenarios, uh, adverse conditions that have defined us as well. And the challenge that we have is that sometimes um, we, we want to let the, we, we let the painful moments of our life limit what God can do. And I think that's a mistake. The reality is this, is that your past is simply the backdrop of everything that now God can do in your life through his power to transform your life from everything that it is or has been and everything that it could be. I'm telling you, if you've, ever, if you've ever gone to a jeweler to buy a diamond, you understand this principle. You go to the jeweler and you tell him you want to buy a diamond, and the first thing that he does is he brings out that, uh, he brings out that black velvet cloth, and he sets the background before he does anything. And now that black backdrop simply makes the diamond shine brighter. And I'm telling you, and if, if you hear nothing else, this is really important, is that whatever painful thing that's happened in your past isn't something to forget. Instead, it's something to share as a highlight of how, God, how good God has been in your life. And listen, that is the heart behind what we're going to talk about today. So we are in message, if you can believe this, number 27 in our series in the book of Acts. And if you aren't aware of what the book of Acts is, um, the book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament right after the Gospels. And it's, um, it, it's a book that talks about the growth, development, and multiplication of the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. And so we've been following the Apostle Paul 
who is originally, his birth name is Saul, and he was a rabbi, very hostile towards Christians, very hostile towards the cause of Jesus, but he has this incredible experience, becomes a Christian, and now is a missionary. Now he's out there planting churches everywhere, and as we've been following his second missionary journey, he finds himself in Athens, Greece. And this is kind of where we left him last time, and if, if just by way of reminder, uh, the city of Athens in Greece was named after Athena, uh, the goddess of war and wisdom in the Greek pantheon of gods. There was an estimated in the city of Athens 30,000 idols in Athens to different gods. Uh, the Roman historian Pliny says that there were over 70,000 statues in the city. Uh, one Roman philosopher from that time said that in the city of Athens, it was easier to find a god than it was to find a man. And so when we left Paul, he had gone up to the Areopagus, or what's called Mars Hill, for the purpose of talking to the philosophers of that day. And what we're going to hear is Paul give his most sophisticated and intellectual sermon recorded in the book of Acts, and we're going to see how that sermon changes him. Most of the time we read Paul's sermons in Acts, and it changes everyone else. This is the sermon that doesn't change everybody else, it changes him. And I am convinced that if we will respond to our defining moments, the way Paul defined, responds to his defining moments, my friends, our lives won't be the same. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 22 when Paul walks up. He says this, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. If you pause there and give me your attention, when we're in a, we have a defining moment in our lives, what is it that God is doing? Well, one of the things that I've learned is that when we have a defining moment, this is in your notes, there's three things we're going to talk about, but the first is this, is that God uses our spiritual gifts. Defining moments usually cause us to need to lean in harder to the gifts that God has given to us to do the things that God is calling us to do. The thing about spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts are given to us by God, but they come to us by God in raw form. And that it's up to us now with the gifts that he has given us to develop and mature those gifts. Uh, the Apostle Paul would write a letter to Timothy at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and he says this, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God. Literally, that means to fan into flame the gift of God, which was given through the laying on of my hands. Now, let me explain that. I'm, I'm a Bible teacher. That's what I do. That's my gifting. And by the way, the way you know someone is a teacher is that they get excited when someone doesn't know something. If you find someone like, oh, you know about, oh, I don't know about that. Like, ugh, I can't believe that person's not a teacher. A teacher gets excited when they find someone that doesn't know something about their kind of wheelhouse of a topic, right? So I was at, um, we were at this party. We had, a, a, our friends had a get together. They invited us. And so our family was there. And so I was talking to some, some, a group of our friends. And um, I said something about ancient Near East literature from the second millennium B.C., and somebody's like, oh, really? Tell me. I don't know anything about that. I was like, oh, for real? Yeah, so, I mean, it was like a dog finding red meat. I mean, it, I was so excited. And I'm like, because I got at any, I could drop it. I got 45 minutes 
on ancient Near East literature from 2000 BC on. I've got 45 minutes. I don't even need to breathe before I, uh, uh, to, to go for it. And so, and I was so excited. But this is why the saddest person in the world is a teacher with no students. And so anyway, but just because I'm a teacher doesn't mean I'm a good one. Uh, just because I'm a teacher doesn't mean, no, you get the gift in raw form, but you've got to start developing the gift. If not, we become a person that has a gift, but it's not useful to anyone because we haven't developed it. So uh, after I got my undergrad in theology, um, I got hired by my church and um, just to kind of do the jobs that everyone didn't want to do. Um, and then they, they, after a little while, I became an intern pastor. And, uh, but one of the things, so we were doing pastoral stuff, and then, but then there was like some training they had us do. And so one of the things we had to do is we had to serve in every ministry in the church over the course of like six months or whatever. So um, they, they had, there was a few of us. And so one, one Sunday, they assigned me and this guy named Mitch, who's a great guy. So they assigned Mitch and I to serve in children's ministry. And um, now, mind you, I, I'm like maximum 24 years old at this point, all right? And uh, I don't even think I was shaving regularly. And so um, I, I, Mitch and I, I didn't have kids. We, I'd been married for like a year. And um, I didn't have kids. I didn't even, I, I had maybe walked through the children's ministry one time by accident. Like I didn't know anything about um, kids. And so anyway, so Mitch and I, they say, you're going to teach 20 first graders at our 11 o'clock service. So I say, fine, I'm a teacher. I can do that. So I get there and I tell Mitch, hey, I'll handle the teaching. You help the kids color. And, uh, and he's like, all right. And so anyway, I get there and I'm going to tell you, I've never forgotten this. I gather all the kids around. And, um, and I opened, this is my opening. All right, kids, how many of you know where ancient Asia Minor is? <laughs> I'm telling you, this is how I opened. <laughs> no. And I said, now when I say Asia Minor, I know you're thinking Asia. You're thinking China and Japan. That's the Far East Asia. I'm talking about ancient Asia Minor. Okay, by the time it took me to say all of that, all 20 of these kids that I had stand up and come around, they had all turned around and walked away. This whole group had mutinied on me within about 30 seconds. And I, I, I didn't know what, to, I'm like, hey, I'm not done. They didn't care. And, uh, and so anyway, my buddy Mitch, who was um, so much uh, more mature than me, he says, Bob, how about you let me handle this and maybe you pick up the crayons. And I'm like, <laughs> deal. And so he gets all the kids together. And now Mitch had, uh, I think, two kids. And so this was so so in his wheelhouse. And so he, he kneels down, gets on their level, and he starts talking, and, and he says, okay, I'm going to tell the story, but you know what? We really need to act it out. Okay, who can act? You can do this. You can do this. All right, I'm going to tell you what your lines are. In two minutes, these kids were teaching the lesson to themselves. It was amazing. All the kids clapped at the end. I was even clapping in the back with all the crayons. It was amazing. And so, and, and listen, and here's the point. Just, and I thought, but I'm the teacher, right? But just because I'm the teacher, one, doesn't mean that my gift is fully developed. It also doesn't mean that my gift works in every environment. It also means that I've got to speak in a way that the audience understands. That's part of developing the gift. And it's obvious that Paul had done this because he goes to a deliver a message to these, these philosophers uh, at the Areopagus, and he's not just faithful to the biblical text, he's also he's going to be quoting Greek philosophy and invites them in. Now, so let me kind of explain a little bit about when he walks up to the Areopagus, what was this? And I say that there are a bunch of philosophers. I don't want you to think that this is like a dark room and everybody's like smoking cigars and sharing their ideas. You know, they've got their little pipes. No, um, th 
the Areopagus is also where politicians would hang out, and this is where these new philosophies would impact laws that were made. Uh, this is also where educators would hang out so that they knew what to teach to up-and-coming generations. So this was like an amalgamation of a college campus, Congress, and a local Starbucks, kind of all put together into one. And I love how Paul opens. He's not confrontational. Instead, he's very complimentary. Did you notice that? Where he says, um, men of Athens, I perceive that you're very religious. I see all the statues, and it's like, hey, faith matters to you, right? But I also noticed your objects of worship, and I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. That's the God I want to talk to you about. See, um, why would someone create a statue like this? Okay, the Greeks worshipped thousands of gods. But one of these guys has this idea and says, hold on, we worship a couple thousand gods, but what if there's a God we don't know about? Because Greek mythology has all these stories of the gods dis uh, disguising themselves and then showing up and destroying entire cities for people not recognizing them. And they're like, there's no way we can let that happen. So the, the Athenians are like, hey, we got a, we got a thing here. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a statue to the unknown god. So just in case a god shows up that we haven't heard of, we'll be like, hey, you know, we did worship you. We just didn't know your name. So we can just cross that one out and then put your name on it. And then they would create another statue to an unknown God just in case there was another guy who, you know, maybe was busy that day or whatever. And then they would tell this to, hey, we wanted to worship. We just didn't know, you know, your marketing department is just not getting your message out, you know, so you got to change that. So anyway, uh, but Paul begins and he says, hey, this God that you don't know, this is the God I want to talk to you about. And he begins at creation and talks about uh, how God doesn't dwell in temples, that every person is the creation of God. And many of the Greeks didn't have a problem with this. One of the, the major schools of philosophy were the Stoics, which is um, developed by a guy named Zeno in about 265 BC. And he believed that the world came into existence because of one supreme God. Um, but then, so he starts there, and then he, he continues in verse 25. Look what Paul says. And so I'll give you the rest of the sermon. It's not long, and then we, we can do some commentary on it. He says, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwelling, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained and he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's a couple of things that are really important here that I want to uh, make note of. Paul says that every human person is descendant of what he says, one blood of every nation, of every people, that is one blood or one man. Now, once again, this is what the Bible has been talking about from the beginning. Every human person is descendant from one couple. And so, and I know people have issues with that sometimes, but um, a couple of years ago, some researchers from the University of Basel in Switzerland were able, and you got to look for this article if you're interested in it, it it's, 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 um, it's online. 
but this, these researchers from the University of Basel in Switzerland, they traced humanity's origins back to one couple. The study that they published revealed that every human being is descendant from one couple. And th my favorite part is that this research was published in an issue of human evolution. I think that is funny. And so anyway, and um, now, which, you know, I think is great. It's like, hey guys, welcome. We've been talking about this forever, but we're glad you guys caught up. And so, but listen, this is not what the Greeks believed. The Greeks did not believe that every person descended from, um, fr from, from one group. They, the Greeks believed that they were uh, more sophisticated. They were intellectually superior um, than, than any other group. Their culture was superior. In fact, um, the Greeks believed that anyone who was not Greek was a barbarian. In fact, the reason why that word came into existence is because that's what Greeks would say. Whenever they would hear someone speaking another language, they would say, oh, bar, 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 bar. So barbarian is, is simply the noun of, of, of that. So what Paul does to connect them to every person is he says, um, he quotes two of their prophets or two of their poets. When he says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, that is a quote from a, a Greek poet named Epimenides from about 600 B.C., when he says, we are his offspring, that is a quote from uh, a poet named Aratus from about 310 BC. And then Paul says that there is going to be a day of judgment, but that God raised Jesus from the dead. And this is where the conversation ends. He says that, I want you to show you the last two verses. He says, he gave us assurance by raising him from the dead. Verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, let me explain something to you real quick. When we want to understand what's happening in the Bible, it's important to notice what's there. And sometimes it's also important to notice what's not there. So Paul gives this sermon, and he talks about creation he talks about people being made in God's image. He talks about how to worship God. He talks about the judgment to come. He talks about the person of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So what did he miss? He really only missed one thing. What was it? The cross. He never mentions the cross. He never mentions the fact that Jesus died and then rose again. And this moment, this thing that he missed becomes a defining moment in Paul's life and ministry. And the reason that we know that is because of what happens next when he goes into the next city. Look at what happens in chapter 18, verse 1. He says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went into Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. By the way, this is about 49 A.D., uh, when that happened, and he came to them. So, because they were of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, defining moment happens. God wants us to lean into our gifts, our spiritual gifts, but the other thing that happens is sometimes the defining moment is bigger than we are. And this is where God, and this is the, the point that God encourages our desire to grow. Sometimes we have to grow into the moment that's there. So I want you to imagine you're the Apostle Paul. You went to Athens, you gave your sermon, and nobody cared. You totally struck out, right? No church was, every time Paul goes to a city, he preaches the gospel, 
People come to know Jesus. A church is started, and then he moves on. No church is started in Athens. Very few people are even interested that, um, th that, that, that Paul was there preaching. And so he leaves. And he realizes that what he forgot is to talk about the cross, the most important thing. And, and I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you forgot the thing that was, that was most important. A, few, a couple years ago, my wife sends me to Publix to go pick up a prescription for her at the pharmacy. I get to the pharmacy, it's the first thing I did. I go to the pharmacy and they said it was gonna be a few minutes. So then I just like, well, I'll walk around. So I grab a cart and think, well, maybe something will catch my attention. And so then um, I go to the bakery and um, I don't know if you know this, but if you are under the age of 12, they will give you a free cookie at the bakery. So I went and I just said, hey, hi, I have three children. And they're like, oh, would you like to give them a cookie? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll take three. And so anyway, I didn't tell them the kids were with me. I just said I had three children. They gave me three cookies. And uh, I just went with it. And so anyway, um, so then I'm eating my cookies as I'm walking around. And then I walk over to the deli. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to pick up some deli meat while I'm here. And then... Um, uh, the other thing, so let me just tell you a little something uh, about me. I do a lot of shopping uh, at our house, and I am, I cannot resist the Publix BOGO offers. I'm just straight up, I'll tell you. I'm very committed to the BOGO. Um, I downloaded the Publix app. By the way, if you're not aware, all the BOGOs start on Thursday. That everything works Thursday to Thursday, just so you're aware. Because sometimes you're like, hey, what happened? Well, you show up on Wednesday, it's going to be gone. So make a commitment that you got to show up there Thursday when things start happening. Anyway, so... I get there and everything I love is on sale. Buy one, get one. And, I, and I'm talking about ice cream, cereal, chips, other assorted treats. And um, my kids love when I go, my kids love when I go shopping because I have basically the palate of an eight-year-old. And um, whereas my wife, when she goes shopping, she buys like fruit and yogurt and other disgusting things. And um, so, and so when, when, um, when <laughs> so I'll go food shopping and she'll be like, Bob, please don't buy junk food. And so what I've had to do is I've created a new category. I don't buy junk food. I buy, in our house, what's referred to as candy resources. And, um, and so sometimes I'll bring stuff in and my daughter Mia will say, hey, did you get any candy resources? I'm like, let's wait for your mom to walk away and then we'll talk about what just happened. And uh, so anyway, I get to the cashier. I somehow spent 150 bucks in 10 minutes. And um, I put everything in the car, I drive home, um, I open the trunk, I bring everything in in one trip because I'm a man and that's what we do. I don't know who are these guys who are taking multiple trips, but it's not me. So then I put everything on the counter and my wife says, hey, what bag did you put the prescription in? <laughs> and so I grab my keys and I'm like, hey, I'll be right back. And she says, where are you going? I'm like, oh, I got to go to Publix real quick. And she says, for what? And I'm like, oh, I just got to get something. And she's like, you forgot the prescription, didn't you? That was your one job, dude. You had one job, pick up the prescription. You bought four boxes of Cinnamon Toast Crunch and you forgot the prescription. And I'm like, you know what? First of all, that cereal was on sale. And secondly, well, I don't really know what happened. And, uh, and, and now, so here's what I tell you. We can all forget what's most important. So let me, let me give you, let me show, give our trusty map here. Paul is in Athens. He strikes out there. The next place he goes is Corinth. Now, it's not surprising that he went to Corinth because in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, Corinth was a metropolis. Uh, it, was, it was a very diverse area, kind of a wild place. Uh, you know, in short, Corinth was like the, you know, Las Vegas of the Roman Empire minus the Cirque du Soleil show, all right? But um, because of its location, Corinth was 
a key to the trading world. Um, it, it received heavy traffic, not only by land, but also by sea, full of merchants. It was a melting pot of cultures. So Jews, Greeks, and everybody else took up residence in Corinth and all bringing their lifestyle, their culture, their values, and sometimes even their own gods with them. Paul shows up in Corinth after having struck out and he starts preaching the gospel there and ends up staying for 18 months because so many people are coming to know Jesus. Now, what is the difference? And this is the key. What is the difference between Paul's preaching in Athens and his preaching in Corinth? Paul explains himself because he writes a letter after he plants the church in Corinth. A couple of years later, he writes them a letter. And he, here's what he says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul starts preaching the cross. He starts talking about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross, the resurrection of Jesus. And when he starts preaching the simple gospel message, things start exploding. Lots of people start coming to know Jesus. In fact, he says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, where he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul gets to Corinth, and he's not interested in quoting poets. He's not interested in arguing with philosophers. Instead, he focuses on the person of Jesus and the cross. In fact, you get to chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. He's not done talking about his method and strategy and preaching style. He says this in chapter 2, verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen, do you see the difference between... Paul's sermon in Athens and how Paul is approaching the gospel and reaching people when he gets to Corinth. It's night and day. And my point is this, is that if the apostle Paul can use this defining moment and see it as an opportunity to keep growing, what does that mean for us? It means that we need to commit ourselves to keep growing and learning because none of us have arrived. All of us have room to grow. And I've learned, I've learned this, that when we understand our gifts and commit ourselves to grow, God's got more to work with to bring about those defining moments. And I love the fact that Paul didn't stop. He's alone in all of this. It's not gonna be until a couple verses later that Silas and Timothy, his companions, are gonna show up in Corinth after he's gonna have been there for a bit. But listen, some of us try at something and we fail and then we pack it in because we can't bear the idea of failing again. Let me tell you something, failing is part of life. The person who won't put themselves out there potentially to fail will never do anything of significance uh, in, in this world. In the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says this. It's, a, it's such a powerful statement. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Notice that there's two things that he's saying, that there's a difference between believing in God and believing God. 
One is a matter of fact that God exists. The other is a choice when we decide to trust him. And there is a moment in our lives when we decide to not just read the stories and, oh, the Bible, yeah, some good stuff in there. And, and, but, and we don't realize that what God is revealing to us is who he is. He's revealing to us his nature and his character. And if these people trusted him and saw what they saw, then we can trust him and see some similar things. Because there are things in life that you cannot learn or experience without actually doing them. Now, as much as you and I might try, you can't learn to swim on the internet, right? And by the way, I was amazed when I found a website a, a while back that offers swimming lessons online. Now, so, and I just copied this whole thing. I put it in my notes because I'm going to teach it to you. So if you want to learn the breaststroke, here is the online lesson, Okay. And by the way, they encourage you to have a flat surface, so whether it's like a stool or whether it's a chair that doesn't have a, black, a back so you can lay, like lay on your chest as you do this. So here's what they say. Step one, leg movement. Move your, le your feet and legs together like a frog would. Simply bend your knees and lift your feet up as far as your posterior and then turn your feet out in preparation for pushing back at the bottom of your foot. Move your feet out and in to meet each other again and straighten your legs with your knees touching. Step one. So once you've got that mastered, you can move on to step two. Step two, start out by placing your arms out in front of you. With your palms facing outward, uh, push towards your hands out as if you were drawing a full circle. Your hands finish by stretching forward again. Now, the other thing, step three. You might have been wondering, like, how do I breathe? Don't worry, that's step three. When you have mastered the arm and leg movements, you will notice that your head naturally starts to lift at the end of the cycle. When this occurs, simply lift your face and take a breath through your mouth. <gasps> so there you go. You're doing it, right? Step four. The last step is to put the whole stroke together. So put your arms and breathe in <gasps> as you pull your legs and stretch out. With now listen, I'm not trying to be negative. No one is going to learn how to swim online. You've got a better chance of learning how to swim in the shower than you do learning to swim online. And I'm telling you, it is the exact same thing with knowing God and believing God. You don't experience the power of God in your life sitting on the couch or standing on the sidelines. At some point, you've got to decide what you believe and act on it. Yeah, but what if I make mistakes? Of course you're going to make mistakes. Successful people aren't measured by their lack of mistakes. They're measured by the fact that they don't give up until they reach the goal. And this is the thing that we see with the Apostle Paul. And that's why what happens next is so powerful. Look at verse 5. It says, And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city." And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing. Then we're going to wrap it up. 
When you have a defining moment, most of the time, God is going to have you lean into your gifts. Not only that, but God's going to want you to kind of grow into the moment where God is going to encourage you, your, your desire to grow. But then there comes this other point in time where God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, when we are confronted with this moment, right, a defining moment, there's usually something that we need to do, something to embrace, something to say goodbye to, th- something to step into. But there's always this moment when we do what God is calling us to do, God shows up in a way that only he can. And my friends, this is a principle of spiritual life where God is calling us to obey him. And once we obey him, that's when God does the part that only he can do. And let me tell you something that we do as Christians, if we're being honest, is that we've gotten so good at putting spiritual jargon on everything, we can spiritualize our disobedience to make it sound like we're doing what God wants us to do and we're actually doing the opposite. So we'll talk about like, hey, man, I'm just seeking the Lord right now. What does that mean? It's like you prayed once and now you're just sitting around? No, that's not what seeking the Lord is. Seeking the Lord is not code for being lazy. It's a call to live God's way. So we do our part and then God does the part that we couldn't do for ourselves. Paul is doing that. He's learned the lesson from Athens and now he's getting opposition uh, there in Corinth. And here's the thing that's amazing. Lots of people are coming to know Jesus. Now he's done everything he knows to do. Then God shows up, gives him this vision, and says, hey, I don't want you to be afraid. Now listen, I've read this passage hundreds of times, and I've never detected that Paul was afraid. In fact, the only place that you know Paul was afraid is when he tells the story in uh, what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, when I came to you, I came in much fear. And so then it's in that moment that God now encourages Paul and says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Now, these two verses, verses 9 and 10, have such special meaning to me because God used them in a defining moment in my life. Uh, When we were starting Calvary now, a little over 23 years ago, I had, um, so for those of you that don't know, I I spent about four and a half years running a college before I, um, before coming here to start the church. And so, um, so this was the week we were going to have our very first Sunday service at Calvary. So it's like Wednesday, Thursday. And um, a friend of mine calls me in, at the office and he says, hey, uh, you, what's your fax number? Now, this is like a million years ago. So we were still writing on tablets of stone and all that. So, but I had a fax number and I had a beeper on my belt. So just to give you an idea. So I give him the fax number because, hey, I'm going to send something over to you. Can you check it out? So I go over and uh, I wait for it to come through. And it's just all it is. It's one page. It's, it's these two verses, verses uh, nine and 10 of Acts. Uh, typed out, and then it just says, Bob, I was praying this morning and thought of you. Um, be blessed. And he signed his name. And this is a pastor I've known forever. And um, he didn't know. What he didn't know was that that morning, I woke up in a panic. We were going to start this church. We had this little Bible study that we had started, maybe like 20, 25 people there. And, um, I, and I thought, what if nobody shows up? And I had just, I, I, I woke up, I was so scared. I had just kind of convinced myself, we are going to start this church and no one is going to show up. And it's going to be an embarrassment to me. And this is, I'm going to dishonor God by doing this. What a disaster. I can't believe that I said I felt God leading me to do this and whatever. And I was just working myself up. I, I sit in my office, that fax comes through and I'm telling you the peace of God came into my life. Um, and I'm like, okay, now I remember why. God's with me. This is, this, is, this is the moment. Listen, here's the thing that we mess up on as Christians. We think when the blessing of God is on you, we think that means everything is going to be easy. That's not the case. 
Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, there is, now the book of Deuteronomy is 34 chapters. It's basically organized around three final sermons that Moses gives before his death. Um, in chapter 32, God calls Moses to meet, meet with him. And God tells Moses, I want you to write down this song and I want you to teach the children of Israel to sing this song. And, in, um, and this becomes, it's called the Song of Moses and you can read it in chapter 32. But um, this is, God has given him the lyrics. And here's what I want you to read. I want to read just one line from it. This is one line. But it says this, How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to think about the audacity of that statement. That God is telling his people that when I'm with you, one person will be able to put a thousand people in motion to run away. And two people, and you're thinking, oh, two people will be able to put 2,000. No, that's not the way the economy of God works. The economy of God is exponential. Not, it's not addition. If one person can chase a thousand, two will chase 10,000. And this is, listen, this is a statement that you see used throughout the Bible about what God can do when the favor of God is on them. And God is telling his people that we can accomplish exponentially more when God is with us. And this is why the favor and blessing of God is so important. And the problem is the thing that we mess up on is we just think, as I mentioned, you know, if the blessing of God is on me, then everything is going to be easy. And we give up when things aren't easy because we erroneously believe that if God's in it, it's going to be simple. And that's not the way it works. And I hear Christians all the time who give up on things. They're like, well, God didn't open a door. And it's like, what if God wanted you to take a sledgehammer and create a door? What if God wanted you to crash through the window? And the fingerprints of God's favor in your life is not that it's easy. The fingerprints of God's favor is that he has a way of exponentially blessing our effort and doing more than we could ever do on our own. And when you and I embrace the defining moments of what God is calling us to do, there will be no stopping us. Because it isn't just you. It's you fueled by the power of God the calling of God on your life and the favor of God on your life. And there's just no stopping that. And my friends, this is why communion is such a powerful reminder to us. It's a reminder that we are connected to Jesus and the power of God is available to us. But it's also a reminder that we are loved by God. And that love is God's motivation in everything that he does in us and through us and for us. So I'm gonna invite the ushers to come forward. They're going to hand out the communion elements. And here's my encouragement to you. I'm going to encourage you to hang on to them because we're going to partake of the communion elements together as Pastor George leads us. I will live for the moments where I'm still in your presence. All the noise dies down. Lord, speak to me now. You have all my attention. I will linger and listen. I can't miss a thing. Lord, I know my heart wants more of you. My heart wants something new. 
so high, surrender all. So all I want is to live within Your love, be undone by who You are. My desire is to know You deeper. Cause all I want is to live within your love Be undone by who you are My desire is to know you deeper Lord, I will open up again Throw my fears into the wind I am desperate for a touch of heaven. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. And Lord, we are grateful that you don't just meet us in the defining moments, but you want to be with us in every moment. So Lord, help us. Help us to acknowledge your presence in every moment that we might be the people that you're calling us to be because you want to change this world and you want to begin with changing our world from the inside out. So we thank you for it and we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.